0: Something new uh, is a time we're coming through. Uh, uh,
1: Hello and welcome to the conversations. the conversations. It's me here Himrieta with Jason Campbell and we're really excited for this episode, My Face Hat. Because mm-hmm. we're joined by a very very special guest, Keyboy Chase Marshall. He's a writer-designer and the author of an incredible business of fashion op-ed, which is what brought us together. Hi.
2: Hello. <laughs> Welcome, Kidway. <boy. laughs> Hi. I'm excited to connect with you all in person after some really, really inspiring email, Instagram salutations. So it's cool to, to have real people in the
1: room. <laughs> How are you? Welcome um, to New York. I'm cold.
2: <laughs> I'm very cold. Yes,
0: I can like understand no, he's that. He's just
1: come in from LA, so... The weather is is not serving him well at the moment. (laughs) You are a designer-writer. You've designed for everyone from Ralph Lauren right through to...
2: Yeah. um, I moved to New York after high school. My first internship was was with Richard Tyler. My second internship was with Michael Kors at a very different time for his company, both image-wise and scale-wise. It was a very small company. It was at the time the collection design team worked under Michael. There was a design director and two designers. One of them left. I, as an intern, began doing the majority of the work she used to do. And the same week that I got de-enrolled from all my classes at NYU because I couldn't get loans, I got offered a position at Michael Kors. I thought I would design for a year or two while I figured out how to finance school. And over the course of the next nine years or so, I ended up designing for Isaac Mizrahi, then Oscar de la Renta, then Ralph Lauren. I worked for Gap Incorporated, launching a new brand that they had developed. I worked for Jay Mandel. I worked for an original so Penguin. So you worked
1: for a lot of the big yeah. American designers. And, and um,
2: big American designers and brands, right. even.
1: And then you pivoted to writing.
2: Yeah. So then at the 10 year mark of completing high school, I was like, you know, I've worked for these designers and I've learned to really see the world through the aesthetic perspectives of other people. But I've yet to sort of really develop my own. And so I really wanted to enrich what I brought to the creative process. I went back to school I studied modern culture and media in Providence, Rhode Island at Brown University. Completed my BA there and really grew, I think, as a communicator about fashion and apparel and began working initially for a trend forecasting firm called WGSN. Okay. Yeah, as a women's runway editor, so I covered the collections and created trend reports that addressed new directions the industry was going in, as well as things within market that seemed to be really floating to the top news-wise.
1: I asked the question because it provides, I think, some really sound context around what makes you super well-versed, feel like you have a a very good sort of 360 perspective on the industry, which brings us to the question of, I guess, how this business of fashion op-ed came to be.
2: Yeah. So after I worked at WGSN, I started contributing in a really robust way to the fashion coverage at fashionista.com. I over the last few, like couple of years, haven't contributed as much overall runway coverage, but was contributing more targeted pieces, often around representation of Black people within the industry. So I had written recently about the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund having the largest n- number of Black nominees in one cycle, or having a four in one cycle, which was more than they'd had cumulatively for, I believe, the 13 years that the fund had been in existence. That was sort of the writing I was doing. So I pitched the op-ed about the challenges that black designers wanting to work in mainstream brands face. And I got this very disturbing, tepid response of like, we'll pass. And I thought to myself, like, you know, I write, I pitch. When I imagine some far-fetched trend, I often get a, like, will pass from an editor, and I take it and I move on to the next pitch. But I was like, this is news. This is not sort of something that I'm subjectively feeling is prevalent. This is... For fact occurring in this industry,
0: right. But Kim, before coming to that point of the pitching of the stories, for mm-hmm. example, there's a there's a thesis here that being the the really the lack of represent the lack of representation. I'm not sure if that that has come out quite yet in this um in this conversation. The the general lack of representation of people of color in this business, in specifically right in your op-ed, you write about in the design roles and in the executive roles and in those in in that the, those decision making corridors yeah. in this business. That's the general premise of well, this.
2: I mean, there black people are disturbingly absent in a myriad of directions in fashion industry, but for the sake of being constructive and focused, I decided to isolate the design space. And what I really focused on was saying that within design studios, black professionals are rarely allowed to attain the role of design director, creative director, VP of design. Right. Because I really want to have people realize that it's not just about tokenism and or is it just about raw numbers of people in a company? Right. It's about people of influence. And that's when you're at the upper management or executive level.
1: And this is why I found your piece so inspiring. There was a section of it that actually inspired me to write my own op-ed in in the face of a few um, outlandish things that had happened yeah. within the industry, but. That I think that's really where the argument lies, because I feel like we've maybe been lulled into this false sense of progress with the number of black models that are being slightly bumped up on mm-hmm. the catwalk shows or in ad campaigns. And so from face value, it seems like there is progress and it's being conflated into a larger issue, which is that in the large, in this. You of all decision, can't see,
2: but I'm nodding. Like, <laughs> vigorously to all of us is so accurate.
1: Yeah, because I feel like your point really is that in these decision making roles, there is a lack of people of color, more specifically black people in these roles. And I think that was really what was really powerful because when we talk about diversity within the industry, it's usually a public consuming facing thing. We don't really talk about what's going on behind (laughs) the scenes on a decision-making level and on a gatekeeping level.
2: And I think that it's important that at this point within the fashion industry, we not sort of drink our own Kool-Aid in regard to believing that the creation of images is indicative of the switch of ideologies. So ad campaigns and runway shows are manufactured marketing that relies on the crafting of image to tell a story. But they're not truth, you know? I, I made quotes around truth. <sighs> they, so we can't take everything that we see on a runway or in an ad campaign for face value. So because a designer chooses for a season or a few seasons or indefinitely to cast black models... We cannot necessarily give credit to that designer for in the broader cultural and political space being uh, supportive of the issues that affect Black people.
1: Right, including the internal...
2: In- including how they hire within the their internal company.
1: internal protocol. Yes, to that point, I think what was also really powerful and a point of difference in your article was that you also outlined quite a definitive step yeah. towards reconciling these issues. Could you kind of just outline what they are first quickly? Because we want to so, find out exactly how it went.
0: And 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 before outlining um exactly that, I wanna and the reason why I want to bring this up is because I just read this article by this interview with Quincy Jones, and yeah. he mentions he mentions this in the article, and I'm I'm hoping this w- this will give you a segue into you breaking down um, the solutions. But he mentioned glass ceiling, mm-hmm. and he mentioned it in a way that was very matter of fact. He was just like, well, yeah, women and women and people of color, you know, they've understood this glass ceiling things. He was speaking um, primarily about the music industry, but about around industries, and he just really kind of mentioned that very matter of factly that, yeah, well, of course we live. with... This this is how things are that you reach a point and you plateau and that that's effectively in many ways what you what you speak about in your article that there is ultimately a glass ceiling and you you come to a point where you can't you don't ascend any further.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I began to realize was most disturbing about the phenomenon of black exclusion from design studios was the culture of silence around it. That was to me the most insidious. Mm-hmm. element of this whole phenomenon is that it's one thing, not by any means to diminish the challenges that women face in most professional industries. But what I think we're learning in this moment is that you have to allow for the truth of a phenomenon to be acknowledged before individual instances can be of injustice can be rectified. If we don't acknowledge that patriarchy is present in our culture, when women say, I am not titled as I should be, I am not paid as my male counterpart Mm -hmm. is, we Mm -hmm. look at each one of those as isolated incidences Mm -hmm. and make each woman have to prove that patriarchy exists. Right, exactly. So in this Me Too Time's Up moment, what we've done is we said, these patterns exist, we know, Mm -hmm. and so when people speak up about their personal experiences, we don't have to make them prove that patriarchy exists well, for some reason, we don't extend that same level of historic honesty to the challenges that face Black people in America.
1: So do you feel as much progress, because I also don't want to diminish the the progress that has been made, Mm -hmm. um, because there have been strides made, but do you feel like with all the progress, the fashion industry hasn't maybe fostered an environment or a culture where we're comfortable enough to speak about race in such an open way that we could then have those dialogues and try to reconcile those solutions because let's not be confused. This is a very uncomfortable conversation. Even when I was kind of you know putting out things on social media and on my stories, I was having so many private conversations mm. with my white colleagues and counterparts and friends, and it wasn't there was no malice in it. They felt uncomfortable or like you know it wasn't like a thing that they knew enough about or they didn't want to get it wrong. And so, have we? Is that what it is? Do you think that we need to foster um, more of a comfort I think level that to have
2: there is a dialogue fostered already. I just think that it's inauthentic because fashion is actually, to pat fashion on the back, it is actually a diverse industry that is actually quite inclusive. It is just exclusive of black people because people of every other ethnic identity, people that land on different points within the gender display spectrum, within the sexual orientation spectrum have found places of acceptance within fashion industry and as well have now garnered the ability to be authentic in advocating for their their presence. But there is an insistence that black people maintain second class citizenship. And that's why I said that the fashion industry does not have a diversity problem. The fashion industry has a black people problem. And I launched My Instagram post initially that led to Mm -hmm. the op-ed with the hashtag break silence, break ceilings, because I feel strongly that until the industry stops that insidious, normalized habit of not talking about the exclusion of Black people and therefore pretending that it's not noticed, there will be a airtight glass ceiling that Black professionals will not be able to penetrate. And it's funny because... I have seen different ways in which people normalize the exclusion of black professionals. It's one of my, not my favorite, because <laughs> it's all awful, but one of the ways that I encounter most, I say to a colleague, don't you notice that there aren't black people within the design studios? And they say, you know, I've never noticed that. Yeah. And I, and I want to yell, we observe culture for a living. <laughs> <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> But it, it, the issue is that it is so deep
1: rooted that it's become
2: the status quo. I think everyone notices that there are no black people. If you if because our culture now is in so many ways dependent on black people for various creative stimuli, how can you not notice that there's no one like Rihanna or Beyonce or Jay Z or Colin Kaepernick or Lupita Nyong'o or like how do you not notice well, is no that no one like that. You work with. Well,
0: to that point, is that the rub? Is that That's the rub in this equation in that black culture is, is co opted so often? It's so prevalent in culture globally. Everywhere I go in the world, the reference usually has something to do with like some black cultural, black cultural thing. And then to not have the representation in those corridors that matter, is that really the rub in all of this? It's
2: partially, if it's not the rub, it is certainly the evidence of hypocrisy. Okay. Because it would be one thing if blackness in the commercial media space was marginal. But it's not. It's so central. Anything in our culture right now that you need to sell, you amp it with cool adjacency to blackness and you can sell it. Anything. And so we know blackness is part of the the mainstream cultural dialogue. So how could it not occur to anyone that they don't have any black co-workers?
1: And also black spending power, which is yeah. a whole other thing. But to your point, I think there's a level of tokenism because I think your colleague was also like, well, I'm looking at you. Yeah. And anyway, I digress. Yeah.
0: Well, well, actually, back to the main point here, what has been the response what has been yeah, the response from I, I, your from your article? I, I mean, it, it was very provocative. You put yourself on a on a on a main stage there. Mm-hmm. It was a very brave one. What were the response privately and publicly?
2: So I initially launched an Instagram post, and that's what resulted in Imran Ahmed from Business of Fashion reaching out to me to give me the opportunity to submit my op-ed for publishing on that platform. The op-ed that I had initially pitched to Fashionista. So I first of all just want to say that. I really appreciate that Business of Fashion sort of approached this consideration from a really journalistically rigorous and authentic perspective that he didn't say he would definitively publish it, but he did say he wanted to read it. And because I felt I brought a level of rigor to what I wrote, we had a we had a, an involved edit process. So it takes work to get the conversation in the printed or digitally printed media space right but this conversation is worthy of that work and I really commend them for committing to that so we published the op-ed and because it was in the business of fashion you automatically know as a writer that that is going to make it in front of the eyes of the most influential people within fashion industry and some of the people that are centrally located in this dialogue as the, for lack of a better term, like the culprits, you know? Okay. So I know, in other words, that this op-ed floated all the way up to the top of Condé Nast. I know that it floated all the way through the CFDA.
0: But beyond the conjecture, what about the reality? What actually was communicated to you?
2: So people reached out, and there are some patterns about what they offered in response to the article that are affirming, inspiring, disappointing, informative. So a lot of Black colleagues have said that it is... So ultimately, not even refreshing, it's almost like liberating to have this spoken because this culture of silence around this issue results in every time you encounter discrimination professionally and you talk to your colleagues. It is as though it is an isolated incident and you have to prove that something happened to you as opposed to say that I am part of a pattern. So there's that. And and that's been very affirming for me. Then another phenomenon that has been, and I'm glad you asked me the question because I wanted to speak about this. Another phenomenon that's been a little bit more disturbing is the culture of non-Black colleagues saying to me, I read your op-ed, it's really well written. It's a really, uh, congrats on publishing something in the business of fashion. And I've always pushed back on them. Okay, well thank you. I appreciate the compliment, but I'm a lot more invested in having a dialogue with you about the issue of discrimination against black designers. Right. What do you think about that? Right. And people kind of, by then, they miraculously evaporated. Like, where'd you go? Well, I think
1: that's a, a good point, because I actually received a lot of the same feedback. And... I think that it's it's somewhat the surprise that it was a well-thought-out, nuanced piece rather than just like, fuck everyone! Yeah, Like, you know, it, it wasn't dumbed down or it wasn't an, a, just an angry, like,
2: thoughtless op-ed. Which if anyone spends three seconds with you, they would quickly, if they're present, discern is not ever going to come out of you.
1: But I think that it was also surprising to a lot of people, which we'll go into, I hope has been addressed... That it was a very solutions oriented Mm -hmm. piece. So, did anyone from Vogue, CFDA, or any position of quote unquote power reach out to you? Just
2: quickly, in case any listeners have not read the op ed, which I'm shocked and chagrined about, and they should read it. (laughs) The op ed concludes in a proposal for an initiative that would be co directed by the CFDA and Vogue, introduced to the community of designers and Headhunting and recruiting. It's a three-pronged proposal. Really briefly, the first area is within the design community, and it would request that brands sign a pledge to create equitable inroads for designers that are Black toward being hired. So it's not an affirmative action sort of proposal of up your numbers. It's about creating equitable hiring opportunities. These brands that sign this pledge would also do bias mitigation training of hiring managers. And this is something that across other industries has become standard. And they would also agree to disclose the ethnic breakdown of their upper management and executive level design team members. So that transparency is something that, let's look at the tech space for a very forward thinking industry in regard to how to right the wrongs of Uh, inequitable hiring the first step is creating a culture of transparency in regard to who is comprising the current teams of course so that's a design space then the next space the second space is headhunting and recruiting which many people outside of the industry don't know is the it is the broker of opportunity for designers of all ethnicities so there is no way to pursue opportunities at big name brands or mass market brands, if you aren't being presented as a potential candidate via a headhunting mm-hmm. agency, okay. they're, they're, it's, it's futile. And these headhunters present candidates to be potentially hired and they receive very large commissions. And so there's often an engagement of identity politics to sort of the term in the tech space is culture fit, which began. A few years ago is this like very postmodern way of saying like, oh my God, we really want to be surrounded by the type of people we want to have a beer with on a Friday night. And quickly within the last three years or so, people have began to really look at culture fit as a way of masking old school discrimination in a new school veneer. Right. Right. So the headhunting community would sign a pledge once again to create equitable inroads, And submit to a systems audit by a third party firm that would come in and look at, do you have standardized portfolio requests? Do people know like, okay, so they want to see three projects, 10 sketches each? Or are you sort of moving that goalpost depending on whether or not right. you like the person? But, Do you but, think that certain roles will hire a definitive certain amount of years of experience? Things like that need to become. But kid, explicit, wait, I gotta tell practice. you though.
0: I gotta tell you, me listening to, to me listening to you saying this, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, wait a minute. This is incredibly niche. Like, what body really cares is going to care enough. You have a personal. You have a very personal experience mm-hmm. with this. You can speak about the internals of this very intimately and understand the solutions that need to be made. But I have to tell you, you breaking it down as soundly, and I've read your op-ed and I was like, all of these solutions make such great sense, and in us having a conversation right now, I'm just like, are there enough people who care.
2: So oh, let me respond to that. The, uh-huh. Who's so going to overlook the all of this? Well, that's, that's why the CFDA and Vogue are charged with leading this initiative for multiple reasons. First of all, the CFDA has a responsibility to, as that sort of industry organization, much in the same way that the Academy of Motion Pictures had to step in and reevaluate the way they were admitting academy members and create younger, more ethnically diverse, more representative of our communities in terms of the gender spectrum, admittees to the Academy, you don't just get to do the sexy handing out of awards. That organization has to do the, the tough, to difficult the work. work. I mean, the yeah.
1: FDA pride themselves
2: on shaping American yeah. fashion. And then I charge Vogue because of the influence of that media outlet and the fact that as Vogue over the last three years has pivoted to engage a great deal more content directed towards people of color, Vogue's digital imprint has grown substantially. They have gained a great deal of contemporary relevance based upon the fact that they're engaging a reader base of people of color. And so they have to make good on honoring the responsibility that their revenue sort of Right, because inclusion
1: that's what i'm saying like inclusion has to be considered across the spectrum
2: yeah right to your point jason i agree this is not easy sexy work this well, is not this is, what is like. not what this is not as well something that is going to be ultimately as glamorous as more black models on the runway what this will result in is more authentic depiction of black people in fashion in fashion media in At the all industry levels, yes which is the point yes but The burning question is,
1: did anyone get back to you?
2: So, really quick. (laughs) Wait, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. no, no, no. We're going to have to actually run this. I'll answer that. So the third part is that those numbers will be... Because I don't want anyone to say that they didn't know the whole...
0: But we want them to get to this point. Yeah,
2: the the third part is that the the numbers around the participating (laughs) firms and brands will be disclosed to the public because the public... And the celebrity space, all of us need to be able to make more informed decisions about how we spend our money and celebrities who they choose to wear in red carpet and indoors. And that would be an annual disclosure. So who would participate in this thing and, and what were the responses? So the Vogue and CFDA to date have not yet responded. And I will return to why that is problematic, but I answered your question first. What I want to say Jason is your question about will people participate? I really know. Uh, yes uh, and no.
0: And, and sorry I don't want to I don't necessarily want to dumb this down uh, to the extent but you know as you said this is not necessarily like the sexiest thing to digest. Yeah. Can't celebrities speaking out like be a shortcut to impacting what's happening in design uh, rooms yes. of these houses? Just as a just as an easy shortcut. In a, in a similar way that that I think like the Kardashians have probably done more for race relations by virtue of what they have done, then, 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 then like, a, then, then a racial, then in, an initiative out there. In I have York. to tell you, you in, know what I mean? In unison. head turn, head tilt. Okay, well, let that let that sink in, people. Let that digest. I assure you that a lot more white people are probably out there embracing black people. Because of their favorite celebrity, the Kardashians, you know, are having them in such close proximity in their lives, okay. never mind in their well, beds and so forth. But we won't thing. take that any I'm, further. That's another aside. <laughs> Thank here's you. The, here's, here's the thing, though.
1: I really don't think that we can slap a Kardashian on air or celebrity on air or, you know, put, um, put a uh, Naomi Campbell in, in this ad campaign. It really is putting a Band-Aid on a room that needs yeah. stitches. It's a really complicated and nuanced problem that has really, really, really deep roots that requires really considerate solutions. And it's not also a topic that we can have in silo. Like, we're all having these silo conversations. We're all advocating for ourselves. But ultimately, it needs to be a collaboration. It needs to be about inclusion. A lot of the response from the article that I wrote was like, well, why aren't we carving our own roads? Like, why can't we splinter off and do our own thing? What, and like, do our own fashion week? What are you talking about?
2: There's definitive reasons why that doesn't set up Black entrepreneurs for success. And I, I, I love to address that. There is a really unique skill set you develop as a designer when you work for some of the most influential brands. You develop a skill set and you develop a network that's invaluable. You really learn at the top tier how to efficiently merchandise, how to efficiently run Uh, production cycle, you develop relationships with vendors that are just interpersonally that much more willing to lower their minimums a little bit for you when they know you from working at these big brands. What happens is that when black designers are denied access to that skill set and that network, when they try to launch these entrepreneurial ventures, they honestly, many of them don't have the knowledge that sets them up for success because they haven't worked at the top tier yeah. of the industry. And also they don't have the network. They don't have factories that are willing to say, okay, we're not going to charge you traditional sam- sample price because we really see you as having the capacity to grow over the next right. 10 years and bring us really yeah. strong production orders. So they are charged exorbitant amounts for their samples and they fizzle after two or three years we see this time and time again and then the most insidious thing is that the the black helmed brands that are successful end up having no choice but to hire designers that aren't black because they want to hire the people that come from the most competitive companies so even in black helmed studios you see a lack of black designers
1: plus just on from a big picture standpoint just for me, segregation just isn't the answer. I exactly. think it really is a conversation of inclusiveness. But going back to the solutions, mm-hmm. um, you haven't had a response from a Vogue CFDA. How do you see the movement that you're inspiring? How do you see that moving forward?
2: So specifically in regard to me submitting a petition to, or me submitting a request to meet about launching an initiative and then launching a petition. It's been incredibly Incredibly inspiring to know how many people do see this strategy for creating change as potentially effective. So while this is not something that on face is as sexy as like you're going to get to see more black models on the runway and maybe your son or daughter could be a model too, this has garnered to date twenty three thousand signatures. The petition. So and can
1: you tell everyone where? They can find that just so that we okay. people
2: that want to participate. If you can. Google one word break silence, break ceilings, you will get the petition link. Mm-hmm. And it's through color of change. And and that number is is growing. The mm-hmm. petition has only been live for two weeks. hmm and over 23,000 people on assigned. signed. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And so what that says to me is what I knew from the beginning, but now I feel very substantiated in saying this, is that I am not approaching the CFDA and Vogue with a sort of interest in a discussion. I want to discuss how to implement this. But the phenomenon of discrimination against black designers is common knowledge to anyone who works within fashion industries right. so just like we need to call times up on sexual harassment and sexual assault against women and pay discrepancies that favor men we need to just call times up on this
1: and i think that's also for me what was really disheartening when i was writing my op-ed because it's not something amongst the public the greater public and other industries that's happening behind closed doors because obviously they don't see what's happening internally but internally yeah You can see the problem, anyone who has eyes. There is usually, you know, me me being a black woman and, you know, working my way up within the marketing departments and ranks. It's like, I am often the only person on this floor of multiple departments. So it it really is such a visible and visceral problem that is baffling to me that it's not something that is
2: addressed. Because this is ultimately about the fact that there is a finite amount of opportunity in any context. So in the fashion industry, there will only be X amount of jobs. And if certain people are obtaining those jobs via a culture of discrimination that favors them, they know that it's not going to be as easy going forward. So just as, and I keep using the analog because for some reason, people have now processed that it's not okay that men get paid more than women for doing the same work. And it's not okay that a woman that has the ability to head a major motion picture studio be denied that opportunity solely because she's a woman. Well, that same same logic applies to race. And it's crazy, as we sit in America in 2018, I should say that and people sort of get cagey like, whoa, wait, now are you taking it too far? But hello, how did I get here? Right. Like, we live in a country with a legacy of slavery that led to Jim Crow, that led to voter suppression, that led to... Let's not pretend that the history of this nation and the globe in terms of colonialism and that history exists and black people were treated in dehumanizing manners and the vestiges of that continue. So to wipe them out, we have to acknowledge them.
1: I think one of the things also that I want to address because I hear this a lot when talking about this is, well, maybe there's a lack of people of color in in senior or these different types of position because there just isn't the talent pool. And so what I found quite compelling, obviously, about your, your op-ed was that it was very solutions-orientated. But I want to know what your solution or how you see us reconciling the incubation process and that nurturing. Because while that opinion is ignorant, obviously, mm-hmm. because there's just it's just not sound, There are certain barriers to entry, whether it's, I didn't know that those positions were available to me, or I tried to get an internship here, I didn't get it, I keep trying to get internships, I need to get a job now, Uh, socioeconomic status, like, um, there are barriers that make it perceived that the
2: the talent pool pool
1: isn't there. there. So in terms of that incubation nurturing process, do you have any thoughts around how that can be applied to
2: people of color? I would say that there the talent pool exists. It is a talent pool that now is frustrated with attempting to access opportunity. The more you pursue opportunity is the more you are stigmatized and blacklisted for sort of not knowing your place. So if the talent pool could be engaged at all, organically, less black professionals would say it's not even worth it to try. But we create a culture of stigmatizing ambitious Black fashion designers.
0: And actually, to that end, I'm questioning, is there a younger generation that's that's being groomed to even... To assume them some of those roles, the entry level, the mid level, yes, we know some of the senior we're of uh, we're of that senior level age, and we know that demographic. But have they been spun out of the system because there's been no apprenticeship, no encouragement? Have they been spun out of the system to an extent? I, I mean, I don't I don't have any numbers, unfortunately, to to or to argue with. Are they being spun out, or are they very much still at the Saint Martins and the Parsons of the world? They just have to go through the whole system and hit their glass well, ceiling if it continues.
2: There are, are self fulfilling prophecies that these phenomenons set up. So as black designers aren't able to move into upper management and executive roles, you find that there are few people offering spaces of mentorship and guidance to young right. black recent graduate graduates and entry level professionals. They're finding less people and we all know this old Cinderella story of Someone saying like, oh my God, I was... It's funny, there's an episode of Girls where Hannah Horvath has an experience like this. Oh my God, I was such a mess. I went to an interview. I showed up a little bit late. I was totally flustered and I couldn't even communicate. And then the person said to me, oh my gosh, you remind me of a young me. I'm going to give you a shot. (laughs) So
0: you,
2: as a black, young, ambitious, recent graduate or entry-level associate designer, assistant designer, you can show up 10 minutes early. You can have killed yourself for the portfolio review portion of your interview. But when you feel that that connection is never possible, when no one is looking at you and being willing to sort of extend that support of, okay, at one point I wasn't perfect too, but I had, I could draw really, really well and I see you have that ability. Or I had a really good eye for discerning what fabrics sew into what garments well you can't sketch that well yet but I see that you have a sense for fabric like if no one is looking to see in you that talent because they're so culture averse you get pushed out of industry and that's why you see like so many people tell these stories and in my petition in the comments you can read through and people will say yeah after like five years of going on interviews and And I just kept reworking my portfolio Mm -hmm. and I just had to let it go and say that's not the industry for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So many people who aren't within fashion industry ask a very, I think, thoughtful question about this whole phenomenon. It's like, well, what does it really matter? Like, so fine, it's fashion, making clothes. What does it really matter? And what I say is that it matters for a host of reasons, but some of the most important to people that aren't in fashion industry are the ways in which Fashion industry is so determinant in the imaging of peoples. Mm-hmm. So the ways in which black people get inauthentically and not thoughtfully depicted within fashion media trickle into other spaces. And it right re- It reperpetuates the tropes of the limited ways in of which course. black people can see. It. So that's of one course. way. The other way, and especially for American markets, American design community is in disarray. You have a lack of innovation and you have a lack of competitiveness with international design communities. And I strongly believe that part of that is the marginalization of black fashion talent. Because if black culture is functioning in such a dynamic and revenue generating space in the international Culture dialogue why aren't we allowing and i'm not saying just anyone why aren't we looking for talented black designers we if you want to make money now you should be actively pursuing black people that bring their perspective to the fashion and not have it
1: be a a force of hand in instances like a h&m where you get called out because you've done something you know, so egregious and therefore you then need to rectify it by being like, okay, right, we're on it. But I feel like they were so forced into it after doing it. They were so forced
2: like, into it and their reaction is still to me so indicative of a lack of interest in bringing black people into the company. But, <laughs> but they hired a good. diversity and inclusion director. Mm-hmm. But that's not what you need. You need to active... It's like, that's not the person you right. need to hire. You just need to recruit black professionals. That's <laughs> yeah. what I take issue
1: with because actually the responsibilities of that... Because that
2: person isn't black, by the way. <laughs> well, no. No,
1: that's not even for me the problem. The problem is that the responsibilities of that role should just be inherent in all employees. Exactly. Right. Decision-making, yeah. right. design, creative, marketing positions. So the fact that even that responsibility is in silo is really problematic.
2: Well, what next, though? What next? Is next? That? Okay, so what next is that the the proposal for this three prong initiative that is very implementable. So this is not sort of a, a vague thing where I spelled something out that can't be done. Right. And it's not
1: something that people are like, oh, we're well, not really considering the yeah. nuances of this. Like in terms of how that, it's like actually very direct. Yeah. And very. So that's reasonable.
2: that's like literally sitting on desks at the CFDA in Vogue. Okay. Now something very interesting occurred yesterday. In regard to this that I feel is on one hand frustrating, on one hand kind of encouraging. The CFDA announced via Stephen Kolb's um, Instagram, among other outlets, that they are partnering with Glamour magazine on an initiative called Glass Runways, which is going to probe gender inequity within fashion industry. Now, initially, I have to be honest that my first response was, in my experience, I found the fashion space to be one of the most supportive and empowering for women. But I did say that I'm interested in explorations of, with the amount of women that work, let's say, in factories, are they seeing equity in the industry, in other words, are, are they earning personal wealth in the way their male counterpart is from working in a factory? Mm-hmm. Okay. But in the design studio, merchandising, sales, retail, PR spaces of fashion. In my experience, I've seen a lot of opportunity for gender equity. And I have a lot of female colleagues that have spoken to me about how they've really enjoyed it in fashion, they feel really supported by an industry that allows women to reach the highest heights. Now, I'm not going to ever say that I'm not open to learning about how that might be a facade that's not true. But that said, if that is going on in regard to women, right, then okay, then you guys are ready to move on things. So okay, great. Let's move on the issue of black people and inequity.
1: And I agree with you. I think to that point about, I guess, for this initiative, I do think it's really important because actually, particularly with again those larger decision making roles, the CEOs, and a lot of them are white males, people that are running these larger companies and conglomerates. I would say it's massively male dominated in a way that isn't equally represent- representative of the male female dynamic. That being said, Condé Nast have also launched them, which I think is a beautiful platform. Mm-hmm. And so, I've you done can... some writing for them, and what I think mm-hmm. that I A part of my whole, why is there no substantial dialogue around this is because you do see a lot of these initiatives with the glass catwalk and the launch of them and all of these other elements that are being participated in from people in fashion. But there seems to be just crickets when it comes to an initiative like what you have proposed. Yeah. So if a Vogue CFDA is not going to pick this up, do you have a plan B or do you have a path forward to... There'll always be a plan B,
2: but the plan B should never have to be engaged. Because as long as the CFDA exists as the Council of Fashion Designers of America, they're the plan A, and they need to do their job. This constant... Requirement of Black people to go rebuild their own Black wheels, ride in the back of the bus, or make your own Black bus. It's 2018, and we need to stop expecting that. I mean, two things about this Glass Runways initiative. I think it's important that women within this fashion space really think critically about how, in this moment, we need to not diminish the challenges being faced by women in extremely gender unequal industries via asserting that that's going on in the fashion space. So my friends that are women that work in finance, that work in law, that work in medicine, that work in academia, let's really think about the ways where that the challenges they face are not present in fashion industry. Right. If there are challenges, we need to name them, but not call them something that they're not because that's not respecting the work that women in other spaces are attempting to do. A. B, I think it's important that we look at American history and we realize that we cannot continue to follow this American pattern of saying, okay, there's inequity in this country. First Let's give women a chance. And by women, we mean white women. Because when you look at American history, in 1920s, women got the ability to vote in this country. But the reality is that that was white women. Mm -hmm. And that it wasn't until 1965 that the Voter Suppression Act allowed black people to vote consistently and equitably across the nation. And that's when black women got to vote. So women in these situations who don't look at the experiences of women who sit in intersectional spaces of race, sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. women that call advocating for white women under the premise of helping others that don't actually get access... They need to be called into question, too. I have a term that I've coined for this. I call it the matriarchy voie. The matriarchy voie is the community of white-identified or white-adjacent women who broker and gatekeep opportunity much in the same way that patriarchy does. And they often indict the patriarchy, but they don't look at how, in many ways, they are blocking access and opportunity too.
0: In in this conversation, I keep thinking about roles. Who's going to keep the ad- advocacy alive? You know, um, no disrespect to your to your efforts here, and no disrespect to my own or your, yours as well, Henrietta. I you know I know this I know this industry fairly well. I know uh-huh. some of the players, but I'm just like. Well, yeah, we're very passionate about this. We're sitting in this forum, you know, discussing this issue that we find that it, it's a vital one. But I am just really thinking about who is going to keep these issues alive and who's going to occupy that roles to keep those roles to keep them alive. And I, I actually don't see the players. And you know, you wrote about your, our white counterparts and the role that they're not playing in, in our in our support. And I, I don't I don't see them occupying those positions either. And and yeah, you're mentioned in. And the women the, the women initiative and how it's not you're like wait a minute, this business doesn't even really have that, that issue, but yet they all they have like pulled it together and it's coming out wait. of Codin NASA coming from an important platform, and that's all like up and running. Like, yeah.
2: <laughs> Jason, one of the things you're right on there, because I've wondered that too, and I have to say that one of the one of the elements of this experience where I have like morphed from writer designer, which was all already a morph, like morphed from that into all of a sudden I'm like, advocate for black professionals within the fashion space in two, three weeks. One of the things that I have encountered is a lack of, I I don't, there have been some challenges getting, finding receptive people within the black fashion media space. And some of the people that I thought would hop on quickly to become sort of amplifiers of this call to action have been, the timing has indicated that if, the, if they are hopping on it's going to be when someone else hops on before them right. Right. and right. so everyone's mm-hmm. waiting for someone to join
1: that's what I that was the image I had in my head by yes. the way after your op-ed piece yeah. came and after the Miraduma nonsense yeah. and, and the H it's almost like I just saw every fashion gatekeeper in a row just waiting looking over yeah. waiting to see who was going first. to Who's first who's first and then as soon as that one person jumped all of a sudden they're like well, it's
2: what, the, into the what water what I have in, in light of that phenomenon decided to be more invested in and it's proving to be constructive is thinking like right now fashion because of operating in the digital era has the most eyes on it from outside of industry that it's ever had mm-hmm. okay. you have more people now that have nothing to do with a design studio or a buying team or a retail floor being like i'm not feeling miraduma's attitudes toward <laughs> the end word," and you're like you don't do anything. Like, you, you, did? how did you form an opinion about her? Because I'm on Instagram, right. and right. she's coming up on my feed because I saw it posted on the Shade Room, right. you know, like, <laughs> and... So what I realized is I don't need to just beg and plead for people within fashion industry to say, okay, we grant you an opportunity to have a True voice. That, yes. And I'm using all of the community that consumes in the fashion space, right. whether it be actual product or whether it be fashion media, mm-hmm. to say, we're not cool with this. Right. So get your act together because we're paying your salaries. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh-huh. Okay, that's how you're taking control of that. If I'm not taking taking control i am granting voice to people with revenue generating power yeah,
1: I think, and then that definitely cannot be underestimated—the consumer power and just the pub, the power of social media and galvanizing that energy is, is going to be really important to this fight. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, this is a huge conversation. I have to say, in having it, I I, <coughs> I may have more questions than I have than I have answers. Yeah. Ultimately, this is this is an ongoing thing for sure.
1: It's an ongoing thing, both for this for this podcast and and obviously the general topic. But the thing is, as much as we are trying to find solutions and reconcile this I think it really is about having the conversation like no pun intended Mm -hmm. the dialogue is so important but not just the dialogue amongst ourselves but the dialogue amongst all of these people who are remaining silent like I really think that's how we're going to make inroads to change so this is a call to action from Vogue CFDA not that anyone's necessarily listening from those we're going to keep on this but I really do hope that your three-pronged approach to more inclusiveness really takes off. And we are kicking off Fashion Month. We're in the thick of it with New York Fashion Week. And these are the
2: conversations that we need to be having. I agree. I think the discussions need to continue as a form of shifting ideology. And Black identified people, we all navigate on any given day in any given situation being like, do I really care about if someone's racist? Like, do do I really have time to care about that? and we kind of weigh it out. Like The person that I bumped into on the subway that looked at me like a piece of trash is racist. I don't care. I needed to go to a meeting and they can stay racist and I can stay going to my meeting. (laughs) But, But then there are other moments when you say like, I have more of a vested interest in building a relationship with someone. And if I'm noting that they're exhibiting prejudice in key ways, I would kind of like that to shift. Well, the conversation can continue and should continue for those relationships in our life to move forward. That said, the policies need to shift in the meantime. So Mm -hmm. like in regard to the CFDA and Vogue, they are going to need to implement a upending of discrimination against Black people in the design space and fashion industry. That is going to need to happen. Now, they... As of this moment, because of initiatives like Time's Up, they pick how long they want to stand on the wrong side of history. So the longer that that plan sits on their desks, they are standing on the wrong side of history. And they need to quickly get on the right side of history. And so this will happen. I'm nodding. I'm nodding. (laughs) This will happen. It's just about doing it in a manner that doesn't put them historically in a place of indictment. So... I want to be optimistic, and I want to, as well, laud the work that those organizations have done in the recent, in regard to getting right on including Black people in certain ways, casting models, in the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. But this is not about tokenism. This is about getting to not a place of extending charity. This is about equity. This is about saying we cannot treat Black people like second-class citizens any longer because, ultimately, we've been doing that let's get right on it so this is gonna happen let's just make it happen quickly (laughs) okay okay well on on that note on that note
1: thank you so 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 much for joining us it's been an incredible
2: conversation i'm honored i'm very inspired by you
0: and i'm warm i'm
2: warm i'm not cold now i feel (laughs) invigorated brilliant thanks good boy thank you